Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, on Friday of this week, I took time in my devotions to invest thought and reflection upon a passage of Scripture that's found in Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, really down to verse 18, is a tremendous, eloquent description of society. And what fascinates me about this is that here Paul wrote in verse 22 of that first chapter of Romans, these words, that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And I was reflecting upon that after the 5-4 Supreme Court decision and analyzing the tension between what I will call creature ethics and creator ethics and pondered the significance of the 5-4 decision as was expected, frankly, and that the swing vote would have been Anthony Kennedy as was expected and that he would write on behalf of the five the majority, as was expected, and would use evolutionary arguments rather than creation ethic arguments, as was expected. So I was still up around 3 o'clock Saturday morning reflecting on these things, pondering the irony that all the pastors on that very day were going to be involved in weddings in various settings from Sheboygan County to Milwaukee out into Pennsylvania, and then thinking about Anthony Kennedy's philosophical underpinnings for his majority statement when he wrote, quote, the ancient origins of marriage confirm its centrality, but it has not stood in isolation from developments in law and society. The history of marriage is one of both continuity and change, he wrote. And that institution, even as confined to opposite sex relations, has evolved over time. Now, our argument biblically is that when you invest in creature ethics, you embrace evolutionary philosophy. But when you invest in creator ethics, you involve yourself in creational, creator ethics and philosophy. And here, Paul, looking very carefully at the decline of culture, appeals back to the argument that here are people that are serving the creature rather than the creator, 
In other words, they're drawing their ethics from the culture rather than from the creator, serving humankind rather than God, drawing their belief system from humankind rather than God. And as a result, you and I are offered this tension that we are now facing. And so I was pondering this over the course of these days, and probably you were the same, that in creature ethics rather than the creator ethics, people rather than God are involved in trying to offer an alternative to God. And so they involve themselves in what I'll call recreating. And so a white woman recreates herself as an African-American woman. An Olympic athlete, Bruce Jenner, recreates himself as a woman. The Supreme Court then involves itself in recreating matters maritally. So now racially and sexually and maritally, what we see here is a substitute plan for the intelligent designer where creature ethics rather than creator ethics begins to shape the decision-making of the culture. And Paul depicts this as culture in decline. Here we find, then, the tension between the legal and the moral. And here we find the tension between liberty and authority. Here we find the tension between sexuality and authority. And what we have to be able to understand is that the homosexual ruling is not about sexuality. It is about authority. The ultimate issue is, says who? Ultimately, who says what constitutes a marriage? If it's creature ethics, then humankind determines what is a marriage. But if it is creator ethics, then it is God who determines what is a marriage. And though our nation became formally a nation in 1789, marriage preceded nationhood, where in the beginning God created man and created woman. And I found that what was happening in the course of these days was that humankind nationwide was coming up with a substitute genesis plan to such a degree that I was fascinated that the legal institutions across the nation, not only at the White House, but also various state capitals, were allowing for in the evening hours artificial lighting of the rainbow colors upon upon the the various capital buildings, which fascinated me because, again, in Genesis ethics, God said at the end of the flood, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I, not the creatures, I, the creator, have set my bowl, rainbow colors, in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. That was artificial lighting developed by the creature rather than genuine lighting designed by the Creator. And now you and I, in the course of these days, have seen what is occurring here 
is that there is a recreating racially, sexually, maritally, and even covenantally, where humankind can't produce a rainbow in the sky, so they produce artificial coloring from below and cast it upon the lawgivers in the various capitals. And I'm reminded then of the brilliance of Charlie Brown as he was talking about this whole matter with Lucy. When Lucy was looking at the rain coming down, and she's standing inside, and she obviously wants to play outdoors. Boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world, she asks. And Charlie Brown, standing next to her as they look out at the rain, says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy then smiles and says, Charlie, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Charlie looks at her and says, sound theology has a way of doing that. The state can't produce sound theology. It produces then as a result if it does not recognize the creator but draws its ethics from the creature. Bad theology. And bad theology produces bad ethics. And so if the state can't lead, the church will lead. If the government can't lead, the church will lead. If the political leaders can't lead, then the pastors must lead, and we will And so we leave it there for now, but we will carry on day after day after day bringing the Creator into the culture and explaining that we are to be a new creation people because the second Adam came to die for your sins and mine to reunite us with our Creator. Amen. I'd like you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to James as we continue on in our study in the book of James, and I want to pick up where we left off in our study now with verse 8, and I'll read down through verse 13 and have with you a word of prayer. And here we read, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, our Father, what we want to do now is not draw from human preference and human opinion, but again go to the one who has ultimate authority, you, and you have spoken, So we examine your words. 
And then we allow for your words to penetrate our hearts. And we allow your words to be able to create within us an appetite, a hunger, a thirst to serve you and worship you. And we do that with Bibles open and we do that with hearts open. Warm these hearts, Father. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Harry Ironside was the pastor of a church that I used to attend in an earlier stage of my life. And he, in one of his stories, describes an incident in the life of a man from England a pastor in England, a bishop in England, a bishop potter. Here's what Dr. Ironside has to say. He was sailing for Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. And when he went on board, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. And after going to see the accommodations, he came to the purse's desk and and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. And he explained, the bishop did, that ordinarily he never availed himself of that privilege. But he had been to his cabin and met the man who was to occupy the other berth in that cabin. And judging from his appearance, the bishop was afraid that he might not be a very trustworthy person. So the purser accepted the responsibility of the valuables and then said, That's all right, Bishop. Be very happy and glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here and left his for the very same reason. (laughs) Which takes us right into this text. Because when you and I are examining this, what we realize is that God is able to go beyond the skin-deep artificiality of our culture and look deeply into the heart and be able to draw us out and minister where ministry needs to truly take place because the issue of the hour is the matter of the heart. And so we look at this now, and what we have done in our prior study was to draw three significant expectations that God has for his people. In our last study in verse 1, we noted with regard to God's impartiality that there's a faith that we are to hold in James chapter 1, rather chapter 2 and verse 1. And then secondly, that there's distinctions that we're going to have to reject in verses 2 through 4. And we noted thirdly last time the questions we're to address in 5 through 7 And so you get to explore those three areas as you look at the insert in our bulletins and reflect upon that. But what I want to do now is to draw out some more expectations that God has of believers, understanding that God himself is impartial. What we had done last time was to reflect upon Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, where you and I were informed that our God is one who, quote, is not partial and takes no bribe. And out of that, we drew this conclusion based upon Leviticus 19, verse 15, where God had said to his people, you shall not be partial. 
Now, this is critically important because in James 2, verse 1, James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had penned these thoughts, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So now, he picks up on that whole idea again, and in verse 9, verse 8, he states, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, in verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So let's develop this now. And our next expectation that God has for believers flows out of verses 8 through 11. And we're going to put it like this, that number one, as impartial believers, I want you to notice with me the law that we are to keep. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now look at that very carefully. And he says, if you really fulfill the royal law. This idea then is rooted in what God has already declared in his Old Testament for you and for me that God is requiring you and requiring me then to treat others with impartiality, to love one another as our neighbor. But there was a problem for a particular lawyer that approached Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And that problem for that lawyer was that he was going to pick up on that Leviticus statement and begin to pose questions, but just who is my neighbor? He wants to draw Jesus out. He wants to entrap Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, to illustrate what James is saying, this lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus has this way of answering questions with questions, doesn't he? And so in Luke chapter 10, his response to this lawyer was, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, now he's put the lawyer on the spot publicly because the lawyer is trying to entrap Jesus publicly. The lawyer responds, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. The very passage now that James was referencing. And Jesus, now I can almost picture my Lord, he's a, He's a strong one, and he smiles at him, I'm sure, and said, you have answered correctly, do this, do this. You see, get applicational now. You'll live. But we are told in Luke 10 that that lawyer desired to justify himself. You nor I can justify ourselves. We are declared righteous by God. He's the one who does the justifying. But now this man is being a bit humbled at this point, and so... Uh, Seeking to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When Jesus chooses not to answer a question with a question, he will often then answer a question with a story. He was a brilliant illustrator. You and I know this story as the story of the great Samaritan. And so Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And the Jews and the Samaritans didn't mix. And Jesus would then save his question to once the story had already been shared. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, there were completing philosophies here. The robber's view was, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. The religious leaders, their view is, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. But for the Samaritan, his view is, what's mine is yours and I'll give it. And now what you find depicted in this story are three competing philosophies on the way in which people are to respond to those who are in need. And typically in our cultures, there are going to be some who are going to say, I'm consumerist, what yours is mine, and I'll take it. But then there's the indifferent, and they opt on the basis of what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. But cutting-edge churches and people who love Jesus are able to say, what's mine is yours, and I'll give it. And now Jesus has, in essence, posed a question who's the neighbor here, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would have known this dialogue, picks up now and says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your whom? Neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Got any Samaritans in your life? But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Got somebody along the side of the road in your life who needs you even now? Do you have the royal touch of ministry? Notice this then. He moves into verse 9 and says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. And we have just gotten done analyzing that word last time and realized that the word partiality involves lifting up someone's face. And in a culture of artificiality and superficiality that is only skin deep, Here we have a Lord who is able to get beyond what Samuel was opting for in choosing a king for Israel, where he looked upon a man named Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed to replace Saul. And the Lord would say to Samuel, do not look out at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? Upon, you see, the heart. So now we ask ourselves this next question. Who in my life am I prone to be partial toward? And who in my life am I prone to be partial against? 
And am I willing to be the way in which God has called me to be impartial in my relationships with one another? Because you'll notice carefully in verse 9, he says, if you're showing partiality, you are committing sin. The Greek word here for sin, harmatia, in the original language, means to miss the mark. It was the picture of one involved in archery, the bow and the arrow. In other words, when he's saying this matter of sin, you're coming up short, buddy. But then he comes to the next phrase here, and convicted by the law as transgressors, and the word transgressor here, parbetas, carries with the idea here of going too far. Now, in our lives, our tendency is either to come up short or else to go too far, depending upon the issue of the hour. And what God is saying here, look very carefully at my standards. Process what it is that I've called you to do. And then you look carefully, really carefully. And in verses 10 and then in 11, you go on to see what God expects of you and what God expects of me. It was in the latter days of what was happening in Eastern Europe. Former communist dictator Eric Honecker of East Germany had been released from the hospital where he had been undergoing treatment for cancer. Now, there was probably not a single person in all of East Germany at that time who was more despised and hated than he was. Been stripped of all his offices, and even his own communist party had kicked him out. And he was booted out of the villa where he was living, and the new government refused to provide him and his wife with accommodations. The state, in essence, had made him homeless. The church stepped in. Where the state comes up short, where the government comes up short, the church stands strong and steps in. See the parallel? Pastor Homer, who was in charge of a Christian help center north of Berlin, was asked by a church leader if he was willing to take the Hanukkahs in. Now, Pastor Homer and his family decided that it would be wrong to give away a room in the center that could be used for needy people or an apartment that their staff needed. You know what he did? Instead, he and his wife decided that the former dictator and his wife would come into their own home. And the word was out on the streets across all of East Germany. Because you see, the former absolute ruler of the country had been sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. In East Germany at that time, there was a great deal of hate toward the former regime, and especially toward Hanukkah and his wife, who had ruled the educational system there for 26 years with an iron hand. She had made sure that very few Christian children were able to get a higher education. There were ten children in the Homer family. Eight of them had applied for further education over the years, and they had been refused opportunity at college level because they were Christians. And the Homers took them in. And Pastor Homer was asked why he and his family would do this. And Pastor Homer spoke very clearly. Our Lord challenged us to follow him and to take in all who are weak 
and heavy laden, both in soul and in body. And Pastor Homer also saw that the Lord's command was to love one's neighbor. We have no bitterness in our hearts. We are simply following our Lord. We are able to truly forgive, he said. And it had an incredible impact upon the culture evangelistically because of the visual illustration of mercy that was being provided. Now, who has been brought into your life where right now you have a tremendous opportunity evangelistically to offer a visual illustration of mercy to make a difference, not merely in that life, but to create a ripple effect for others to begin to process as they think about why you do what you do. Because now what James does is brilliantly take this one step further and notice carefully in verses 10 and 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for it. Now you look at that and you say, that means then that God is saying that there's a responsibility here with regard to the moral law. If I break just one, then in essence I fall short of the mark. How do I understand all of this? Imagine now you've joined me and we're back in New England And the hurricane season is approaching. And New Englanders typically now are beginning to think about the winds, the waves, and what's going to take place in the months to come. And they make sure that they're well stocked. Imagine that you are there on the shoreline and you've got two boats. And these two boats are chained at the docks. And as they're chained at the dock, each boat has ten links in the chain that connects it to the dock. The winds come, the waves intensify. One chain breaks at lengths one and two, three and four, six and seven, nine and ten. The other boat, its chain breaks only between lengths four and five, only one. Question, which boat is in greater danger? Answer, they are equally so. Both are drifting away. Because it doesn't matter if there are multiple breaks or just one breaking of the link. Both boats drift away. Now what God is saying here through James is that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point in verse 10 has become accountable for all of it And so now I say to myself, that means then if there's anything there where I have broken, in other words, a link has been been severed and I'm drifting from God, what can be done? But then we are told that Jesus Christ came, among other reasons, to fulfill the law. He kept what I could not keep, to die the death that I so deserved, so that I could be reestablished with my Creator, through the finished work of the second member of the Trinity who would die in my place. And so I worship the Creator, not the creature, as a result of the second Adam who came to die so that I might live. 
in a drifting culture that seems to have departed from its bearings. And so in verse 11 now, James continues to write, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor. You've gone too far. In other words, what he sees here is something that was a tendency of people in that time period, as well as today. And their tendency was, well, if I break one law over here, but I'm able to keep three of them over here, then evidently, at the end, when I get my monthly statement, it seems as though I've got more in the credit than in the debt column of it all. But this is a works-based approach to achieving righteousness. And like that lawyer who was attempting to justify himself, we become spiritual bankers and we look for an alternative way to be able to gain acceptance from God. And then we find, but we broke a link and we're drifting. And we are in a culture of drift. And Jesus moves into the culture of drift. As in the creation ethics, the second Adam enters into the sinfulness of humanity. And the sinless one dies for the sinful ones. And we become what? New creation people with the ethics that are tied to the creator rather than devised as an alternative by the creature, you see. Now, you pull that together. And as impartial believers, we note then the next expectation, the law we are to keep in verses 8 through 11. But then in verses 12 and 13, you see still another expectation that as impartial believers, you want to notice with me the mercy that we're to provide. In verse 12, look very carefully at the two souls. When you say, so what? Here's your answer. So speak. When you say, so what? Here's another answer. So act. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of what? Liberty. And you draw a line right back to the royal law that was spoken of in verse 8. What God is now saying is that when you embrace the so speak, you are now living according to God's will verbally. And furthermore, when you embrace the so act, you are also living the way in which as a new creation person, you are embracing the creator ethic to live visually, and this is a present command. We're to live as redeemed people. As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, God has told you and me, and there is freedom that is found in our relationship with our God who has given us standards, not on the basis of what the culture creates. That's just simply recreating based upon the sinful nature but rather upon what the Creator Himself has produced. That's ethics based upon the sinless one who has set a standard for the sinful ones who are saved by grace. You tie all that together. You embrace verse 13, where two significant wisdom statements are given for you and for me. Can you spot them? The first one in 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And so I look very carefully, and I see there's Jesus hanging with the tax collectors. 
And furthermore, there's Jesus, and he's hanging with the so-called, quote-unquote, sinners. He's hanging with people, in other words, that the religious establishment would have, would have stepped away from and walked like the religious establishment did on the other side of the street and needed a Samaritan to step in and meet the person at the point of need of mercy. And here's Jesus, and he gets involved where others cannot go. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But here's your other proverbial statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you see that three days later, or after judgment was issued and the penalty was paid, mercy screams life into a dead culture. And you ponder that. And you see the significance of how that relates to you and how it relates to me. When I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and there's this incredible picture the cyclorama. History teachers know something about it. It's a picture of the Battle of Atlanta. It's a large, circular picture, hundreds of feet long. Before one part of it, you see a Confederate lying on the ground of the Civil War. But you look carefully, and there, there is a Federal soldier of the North by his side. Here's the story. During the Battle of Atlanta, famous battery of General Sherman's Army of the North captured a Georgia regiment, and the Union forces massed heavy reinforcements in order to make a countercharge and retake the battery. And in the fighting, a young Confederate was shot down and began calling for water and for help. And no Confederates came to his side. A Federal soldier, a man from the north, had pity on him, mercy on him, took off his canteen, stooped down to give him a drink, only to discover that the wounded man was his own brother. One brother was wearing the blue, the other, the gray. You got somebody now wearing a different uniform? Can you reach out, reach in, and get beyond the outward, and deal with the inward, and minister at the point of need? If you're able to do that and minister for God's glory, you'll pull together the various expectations He's given us to point to the Creator in a society that now worships the creature and give glory to him alone. Let's stand together. In the warmth of these days now of summer and the comings and goings and travels and vacations and on and on, we stand firm, we stand strong, we stand out, We stand upon your word. We realize, Father, that the second Adam gives us the ultimate standard of creator ethics.
He died in our place that we might live. Met a standard we couldn't keep. And now, Father, as a result of salvation by grace, we look at the standards that you have set so we live ethically in a way in which we point towards the Creator and address and reintroduce the whole issue, the creation story, and the ethics tied to it. That far in the past, before the founding of this nation, were established as a standard by which we should live, guide, and direct people. Help us now to find ways, Father, to point people to Jesus, the second Adam. And as a result, give glory to your name. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.